Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. So glad that you have joined us. My name's Cameron. Yeah, g'day. Ken here. Luke here. And I'm Lachlan. Now, uh, last week we uh, saturated the episode with with half-remembered quotes from C.S. Lewis. And I, I, we're not going to dwell on the same topic this week, but I did want to point our listeners to the book's where they came from, or at least where those ideas came from. Frustratingly, Luke, there was a quote that you mentioned, which I also remember reading, which I couldn't find. Such is life. I did find an interesting discussion on humility in a work entitled Answers to Questions on Christianity, which I'm amused to discover was first published as a pamphlet by the Electrical and Musical Industries Christian Fellowship. Wow. So, the Electrical and Musical Industries Christian Fellowship seems to me an amazing group. But uh, in it, he talks about humility and how the, a desire to be good at something is quite a different thing to a desire to be better than other people at that same thing. And he said, where, where a desire to become, to achieve excellence becomes a, a bad desire only when you begin to feel that if others danced as well as you did or looked as nice as you did or succeeded in what you're trying to do better than you, that it would take the fun out of it. That, that seemed to be the litmus test. And that was, we were talking about humility. Uh, Ken, as some of the other ideas we discussed, I think came from mere Christianity. Yeah. He referred to the fact that a, a really humble man won't be what people call humble nowadays, uh, not always telling you that he's nobody. Uh, you'll probably just think of him as a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. Yeah. So, And the other one, of course, is uh, in The Weight of Glory, um, where he says, Perfect humility dispenses with modesty. If God is satisfied with the work, the work may be satisfied with itself. Yeah, well, that's, that's a... A good sentiment and a little appendix there, locked to our episode last week, where we where we couldn't remember or provide citations for the. For it the, just yeah. occurred to me, Cam, it yeah. might be in the Four Loves, ah, but I can't find my my copy. I've got a copy on the shelf. <laughs> um, I'll resist the temptation to <clears throat> abandon this recording and run off and read it to see if we can find it. We'll we'll move on to our discussion for. This week, Locke, we've got some proverbs. Well, first of all, uh, tell us about the lesson topic because we had a bit of a harder time finding proverbs to fit. Yeah, we've the lesson has been so. This is the final episode in our season on rest uh, and rest in Christ, rest in God. Obviously, a a thirteen week season on rest has dwelt on themes of Sabbath quite a lot, and that's something that we have a real interest in. And at times we've struggled to to find things to say, but that we haven't already said in previous podcast recordings. Um, this final episode, this final lesson topic of the quarter is called The Ultimate Rest. And who was it? One of you was just joking that sound almost gangster. Um, yeah, it's like a mafia mob. It, so you want to rest, hey? You yeah. Rest? Ultimate rest. <laughs> yeah, well, it does. Like the Far Side cartoon about the fish with his fins set in styrofoam and set in styrofoam blocks and sent to sleep with the humans. Um. <laughs> That's right. 
Well, ultimate rest. Yeah. So it does touch on on big picture themes, themes of destinies, states, um, ways of being after this life here and now. So uh, picking up on ideas of the great controversy, speaking that although we experience tastes of rest in many ways, as we've discussed for 12 weeks, there is a sense in which rest is not complete while evil is still present. And that the the Bible, most clearly, I think, in the New Testament, speaks of a of a state yet to come where evil is vanquished. And so the lesson picks up those sorts of themes and and discusses rest in that context. And it made me think because Proverbs, uh, just for fun, I did a, a word search for death in the book of Proverbs. There's plenty of death in Proverbs. Death comes in Proverbs for all sorts of 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 bad bad things um the the there is a path before each person that seems right but it ends in death um and the 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 tongue can bring death the despising the commandments leads to death so there's plenty of death in proverbs it seems to be invoked regularly to describe the full magnitude of some of these life errors if we could if we could describe them as the opposite of life hacks cam mm. of course the path that seems right ends in death is in fact true uh, yeah. the path that seems right and indeed the right path both all end paths, in death they all actually. end in death there's a hundred percent chance that you yeah. will die um, well that's right so I thought that we might turn to proverbs 11 uh, let's read the first couple of verses here maybe the first uh, Luke suggested up to up to verse sixteen. So let's Sounds start good. at the start, and we'll read we'll read sixteen verses, and then we'll just see. There's there's a, a bit of this kind of theme coming out here in Proverbs eleven. The Lord detests dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with Him. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. The integrity of the upright guards them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless makes a straight way for them, but the wicked are brought down by their own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the unfaithful are trapped by evil desires. When a wicked man dies, his hope perishes. All he expected from his power comes to nothing. The righteous man is rescued from trouble, and it comes on the wicked instead. With their mouths the godless destroy their neighbours, but through knowledge the righteous escape. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Through the blessings of the upright a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked it is destroyed. Whoever derides their neighbour has no sense, but the one who has understanding holds their tongue. A gossip goes around telling secrets, but those who are trustworthy can keep a confidence. Without wise leadership, a nation falls. There is safety in having many advisers. There's danger in putting up security for a stranger's debt. It's safer not to guarantee another person's debt. A gracious woman gains respect, but ruthless men gain only wealth. Proverbs chapter 11 here has a bit of everything. It has the slightly scattershot feel that a lot of Proverbs does, where we're sort of bouncing around from topic to topic. So uh, there's not immediately apparent a coherent narrative it was verse four that uh 
first drew my attention here in the context of this theme. Riches won't help on the day of judgment, but right living can save you from death. Now, I'll just admit straight away, for a New Testament era Christian, with all of the writings we have of the early Christian time, being saved from death on the day of judgment brings particularly vivid sort of imagery of um, eternal eternal life, uh, the resurrection, the, the judgment of the good and the evil. Um, very, very much great it's controversy the judgment of the quick and the dead, isn't it, though? I thought it was the judgment of the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> I may be thinking of something. Maybe thinking of something else. My first question, and I, I don't know if we're qualified to answer this, but I'm just interested in what you think. Is this in the context of the Book of Proverbs? Does this feel more like it's speaking in those grand terms of of the resurrection and the eternal judgment, or does it? feel a little bit more like it might be speaking about the sorts of judgments and the sorts of punishments and the sorts of experiences that we might have on this earth. Um, riches won't help in the day of judgment, but right living can save you from death. The sense that I get is that uh, the concept of resurrection is more a New Testament one than an Old Testament one. Uh, a straightforward reading of many of the texts that we, with our New Testament eyes, um, find about death in the Old Testament doesn't really carry the connotation of, of resurrection easily. Uh, the, the ones mm. in Ecclesiastes seem much more straightforward uh, as, to be saying more straightforwardly, uh, you live and then you die. Uh, and that's it. Um, the, the, the texts uh, in uh, well, Abraham um, was, uh, you know, he lived a long and uh, productive life, or I can't remember the exact phrase, but, and then he was, you know, taken to his ancestors, and that's often the phrase that's used, mm. or um, uh, he goes to be with his ancestors. Yeah. Death as a, a final end to a life well lived or. Uh, lived wickedly seems to nonetheless be the end result. Yeah, so in that sense, can there's something wrong with Proverbs 11 verse 4? Right living can save you from death. It, well, I mean, it, it just demonstrably can't save you from death, can it? There's plenty of people that have lived pretty right and that are it dead. Might, it might postpone it for a while. I see. Well, um, yeah, and as you said, look, hardly, hardly qualified to talk about this, but did the ancient Israelites, the pre-Christianity Israelite, have a concept of an afterlife. Well, this is the Luke in in the New Testament. It's one of my favourite passages of uh, the narrative section of Acts, where Paul's on trial. Yes, it's fabulous. And and he stands up <laughs> and he notices that half the people accusing him are Sadducees and half them are Pharisees. And the distinguishing, <laughs> the one of the primary distinguishing features is that the Pharisees did believe in a resurrection and the Sadducees didn't. So and then he stands mm. up and he says, "I am, I am on trial. I am a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, and I am on trial today because of my belief in the resurrection." And immediately his accusers turn on each other. <laughs> and, and, and look, we see that all the time in religion, don't we? Um, yet people pick mm -hmm. up on these tiny little 
um, uh, distinctions. I, I I was reading an email from a from a Christian author, um, uh, Frank Viola, and he he said that he wrote an article recently about um, uh, baptism and uh, the incredible power of water baptism as understood by Acts. And it was a, a an article that had two thousand eight hundred and sixty two words in it, and it included uh, these words. Because we are born into this world spiritually dead, so that the article had those seven or eight words, however many it is, out of all that two thousand eight hundred sixty-two, and uh, immediately uh, this article was sent around, and uh, people were railing against him for pronouncing original sin and sending babies to hell, and uh, you know just things that he never said and never intended, um, and and we. Mm. We tend to get these little pet topics that we that we want to pursue, yeah. and we, we we get blinded to the real meaning of what's being said. There's a quote yeah. that my dad likes, which I've I've forgotten the person who said it, but we can enjoy the quote anyway. And I'm sure next time I talk to him, he'll be able to inform me. But a, a theologian once asked about some difference of opinion on on a particular issue, and he said, "Oh yes, well of course in in my church where." near the point of schism uh basically because uh, there's a faction of the church that believes we're saved by the blood of christ and some who believe we're saved through the blood of christ and i myself <laughs> i myself am a, am a strict adherent to one of these schools of thought and violently and adamantly opposed I just can't remember which one it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Paul had a pretty good understanding of the dynamics yeah. of religious groups, didn't he? <laughs> Sectarianism. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that does suggest that the, by the certainly by the end of the Old Testament era, there was... In, in in certain ways, fairly tangible pictures of resurrection, but no, by no means universal. Um, I think what's interesting to note about that is that if you were, and I think that there are Christians who would use that label of themselves and who would enjoy Christian fellowship and who may question any form of resurrection, but I would feel that you would be a little bit further from mainstream if that was your opinion. Christianity seems to be quite a lot more centrally revolved around the idea of resurrection. So here's a train of thought that turns off on on this topic slightly, but may tie into other parts of Proverbs 11. Uh, we shall see. You, I would assume, are all familiar with uh, the divorce of heaven and hell. We're going to see us, Lewis, again. Yeah, the great divorce. Um, the Great Divorce. Um, the Great Divorce, yeah. yeah. We've referred to it in the past, but not for a couple of seasons, I think. So, just you're talking about sectarianism there, and this this splitting, this tendency to split apart, which we've we've touched on in recent episodes, this sort of polarizing, I don't know what the word is, tidal wave is what I imagine it as, uh, sweeping across our societies just dividing people on every conceivable topic um, into into bitter tribal enemies as opposed to as opposed to to fellow citizens who have points of disagreement on which they can discuss um, and what 
all that reminds me of very much is the concept of hell that C.S. Lewis describes hmm. in The Great Divorce. Hmm. For those who aren't familiar with the book, essentially, hell is a place where everybody who, who everybody can choose to stay or leave it. They can choose to either go to heaven or they can choose to go to hell. But heaven's really hard to stay in. It's very painful and uh, you have to give up everything in yourself that's bad or evil to stay to, to, to really acclimatize to it. Um, and it's a very difficult process. And if you have any sort of pride or stubbornness, uh, you, 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 uh, you, you tend to, to fail at it. Luke, I'll qualify that. It's difficult for the people that the author follows. That's true. That's true. There, there are people who are very comfortable in heaven, but the author studies the, the the book follows some people who are on a bus from heaven, from hell to heaven, and and explores what sort of attitudes they have that make it hard for them to stay in heaven. Yes, he he does he does follow new arrivals, hmm. um, and the new arrivals are the ones who find it difficult, at least at first. Uh, anyway, hmm. we're talking about hell. So hell is a place you can come and go anytime you want, and when you're in hell, you can have whatever you want with zero effort. And there's infinite space to have it, which is very clever. Uh, because what happens in hell when people can have whatever they want, there's no need to compromise, there's no need to cooperate, there's no need whatsoever for other people, is that everybody drifts apart in the infinite distance into their own selfish, isolated worlds. And I re- it's a very vivid image that Lewis gives of this, this guy who went to hell and he went to see Napoleon, because Napoleon wasn't a great guy. Um, and he's got this vivid image of this incredible, you know, French palace of the era. And Napoleon is wandering around it alone. There's nobody else there. Um, bitterly complaining about how it was all the fault of the British, it was all the fault of the Russians, it was all the fault of the Germans, just over and over, in absolute misery. Mm. In 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 this in this existence where he can have literally whatever he wants, and that's kind of what I see when I see this splitting apart, the sectarianism. Mm. It's it's like an echo of hell to me. That's fascinating because that connects very vividly in my mind to the idea of rest. There is nothing restful about the kind of existence you're describing there, illustrated in Lewis's depiction of hell. And I, uh, at various times, I've had various levels of difficulty with some of, you know, Adventism got a, got away from eternal conscious torment. And I think that was really good. Um and one of the reasons, so, but it retains this idea of a final death, a final destruction. Why? And I actually think, and this is where that, that humorous reference to the gangster kind of uh, ultimate rest actually does sort of come in. If, if you just imagine a little, a little hypothetical, if you are a God who loves your creation and you can see that your creation has locked itself off from the blessings that are on, on offer and is, and is stuck in a kind of existence in which there is no rest, then a, a kind of a, a euthanasia type picture is, is a loving gift. It is a rest of sorts. A ceasing to exist means a ceasing of torment. So it's, it's very opposite of eternal, eternal conscious torment. And I mean, I, th- I think anybody who's, who's seen a, a, a very elderly 
loved one in pain can understand that. Yeah, so perhaps that's that's a a, a reasonable way to sort of see it. So, so that is one side of this idea of of it ultimate rest. The the bit that I found a little troubling was you you said that in that particular book at least heaven was was a bit hard. It was a bit a bit I don't know if you use the word painful. A bit a bit tough because of this because of this need to actually grapple with those elements of yourself to and, grow and, as you know, a basically person. yeah grow as a person now that doesn't sound restful no it's not very restful well not at first no no but um you know so for instance some people hop off the bus in heaven and are met by someone who they knew to be a bad person that guy was a murderer mm. and mm. they resent the fact that they got in all right well well if he's going to be here i won't stay and they hop on the bus and go home now what makes mm. that experience hard for them is them. It's it's the choi- yeah. little choices they've made over lo- large periods to harbour grudges or bitterness. Well, and and this is this is where I would I would I saw another connection with this Proverbs eleven, which is specifically in verse two, because one one of the one of the characteristics, um, it's it's universal in all of Christian writing, as far as I know. It's certainly something Lewis writes very eloquently about is the complete evilness of pride, mm. right? And what in that story keeps a lot of people from successfully adapting to heaven or growing into heaven um, mm. and keeps them in hell is their pride. Yeah. And, I mean, my personal... This is purely a personal observation put no weight on it whatsoever but i have never yet in my entirety of existence on this planet seen pride achieve one good outcome i've seen it ruin plenty of plenty of possibilities i've seen it destroy relationships i've seen it ruin opportunities i've seen it smother hope i've never yet seen it achieve one valuable thing mm. um but looking at verse 2 the other side of that, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Yes, very straightforward. But remember all the times in Proverbs we've talked about wisdom and, and wisdom as, as an idea to pursue and mm-hmm. and wisdom as, as, as a discrete entity concept that exists outside of ourselves that has value. Um, we haven't really talked about how to find wisdom or how to get wisdom very much. Verse 2 tells us, with mm-hmm. humility comes wisdom. I love the order of that. It's not with wisdom comes humility. You could say that, yeah. and you might not be wrong, but it's actually with humility comes wisdom. So yeah. Yeah. if you want to find wisdom, be humble. Hmm. And you, we've already read these quotes from Lewis about how what true humility looks like. Well, there also is wisdom, and I think that's really valuable. Mm. I, I'm intrigued by this... Um day of wrath this reference to the day of wrath because Mm. is it talking about like a particular end time of the world or is it just saying when when you are reckoned with i've made this point previously i think it's i think it's both cam the uh, you see this a lot with prophets as well when they're talking about something 
it is simultaneously the immediate situation and also the greater mm. concept. So mm. wealth will not save you in the day of wrath could literally be tomorrow when your enemies come to kill you, but yeah. also eternal judgment. It's both. It's not one or the other. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Hmm. Yeah, there has to be some element of that there. If you go looking in Proverbs too hard for deep philosophical universal statements, you keep getting tripped up. So pick the one, the verse we read. Um, pick verse eight of Proverbs eleven. The godly are rescued from trouble, and it falls on the wicked instead. Yeah, really. I mean, I think everyone knows of counterexamples to that. So, so it's clearly what it's saying is something that it, that is thought-provoking, but it's not attempting to be a a sort of philosophically universal statement. Now, I suppose you could rebut what I've just said by saying, if you picture it in this context of the the grand scheme of of the great controversy, then yeah, the godly are rescued from trouble. And I suppose, in a sense, on that scale, the trouble does fall on the wicked instead. Um, although not on all the wicked, because there are some of the wicked who repent. Um, and, you know, we've commented lots about the story of Jonah, but even the thief on the cross next to Jesus and, and various other examples. Jesus even tells a parable, a number of parables. You know, it doesn't matter when you start working. He, he go the guy goes and gets workers all through the day and ends up paying them all the same amount. So so a person who's done a considerable amount of evil and then repents is kind of is kind of right there. So so I guess what I'm saying is I I'm a little troubled by verse eight, but I think that it makes a little bit of sense in the light of what you were commenting on, Luke. The there's there's layers of application of this. Cam, you had a great uh, you had a great poem about the thief on the cross yeah i'm going to use it Share in my it sermon tomorrow if i remember day. it um so it's an excerpt from a poem uh <clears throat> god is up in heaven doesn't do a thing uh, with a thousand or a million angels watching and they never move a wing it's him they ought to crucify instead of you and me i said to this carpenter uh, hanging on a tree mm. <laughs> Thought provoking. Yep. The um, when it, when it comes to uh that verse, I, I agree with your discomfort lock about in verse eight, the righteous person is rescued from trouble, and it falls on the wicked instead. Um, because it doesn't seem to be always true. But it is true in practical terms. If you say Proverbs is an answer to to how ought we live, mm. well, well, you ought live as if a righteous person is rescued from trouble and it falls on the wicked. That's that's how you ought to yes, live. It's, it's aspirational. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, okay. It's describing an ideal, not the sad yeah. reality that we. Well, well no, it may face. well even be describing a general rule, not one without exceptions, not one that's universal, mm. uh, but one that has very practical application. Because the truth is, um, if you do the wrong thing. And you get sued and the person taking you to court establishes that you have done the wrong thing, then on the day of reckoning, you will be called to account. Mm. Um, if you have not done the wrong thing, of course, it is not impossible that you will be sued. But if you are, then there's, one might hope, reasonable prospects 
of establishing that you haven't done the wrong thing. Um, and uh, so that, first of all, you if you haven't done the wrong thing, you're less likely to be called to account on the day of reckoning uh, by not having an action brought against you. And if you do have that action brought against you, you are more likely to be able to successfully defend it. Now, of course, there will be occasions where that doesn't work out. But as a rule of general application, it's a good idea. Yeah. The the mm. this mm. I bring this up only because it was open, having referred to it's one of the the essays. It's the one published by the uh, Electrical and Musical Industries Christian Fellowship. Um, this interview, I think sometimes we make too much of the fact that bad things happen to good people. And, you know, oh, it says here that the righteous person is rescued from trouble, but I know of some good people to whom bad things happened. Um, and this is perhaps a, a more true perspective on that. Uh, Lewis was asked, is it true that Christians must be prepared to live a life of personal discomfort and self-sacrifice in order to qualify for pie in the sky? And he, he replied, all people, whether Christian or not, must be prepared to live a life of discomfort. Mm. and can i say that's that's one of the things that that we are not prepared to do in our modern society our modern world is one in which the principal value that have we said this before have i got onto my hobby horse about this before we have Uh, (laughs) (laughs) the principal value that we promote is comfort and safety. Mm. Uh, and so we, we don't expect to have to live a life of discomfort. Um, and we expect to be universally safe. Uh, anyway, I've said mm. it before, I'm going to mm. leave it. <laughs> On the note of safety and comfort, I read, I listened to a podcast today where they were describing the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm. And very unusually for the times, um, the, the chief engineer of the project insisted that people wore hard hats and he slung a net underneath it to catch people who'd fallen off and the people who fell off and were saved by the net joined a a club called the halfway to hell club (laughs) but it was very dangerous it was very very dangerous and quite a few people died although probably comparable in number to other large-scale construction projects at the time what was notable was that it was built during the depression and so desperate were people for work that the sides of the road leading up to the Golden Gate Bridge were lined with unemployed people waiting for someone to quit or fall off so that they could <laughs> so that they could there take their place. And I think that would make you nervous if you were after safety and comfort and you were sitting there on your 70-storey yeah. tall pile or however tall it yes. is and you looked down and, and saw and a line of... There was someone down on the side of the road shouting, Jump off! <laughs> <laughs> Full, I'm not full. suggesting yes, we should indeed. return full. to those days. Uh, but <laughs> well, Ken, I, I think there's a happy balance somewhere in the middle <laughs> that we mm. we could perhaps find. And I suppose it depends how high off the ground that balance is. Yeah. I, yes, I do wonder what our ancestors from either even a couple of generations ago would think of our obsessions with safety and comfort these days. We've referred to Shackleton's ad, haven't we? Maybe. Let me read it to you. Um, I think we did. Yes. If Look, if we can't remember, chances are the listeners might not be able to remember either. They might not have even listened to that episode. 
Men wanted, uh, for hazardous journeys, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. That was his advert. (laughs) (laughs) Can't say he wasn't honest. Um, Yeah, I was going to say, even even the more adventure of it, even those of us who, as you and I do, can rail against the concepts of comfort and safety, we're far more tied to those things than I like to admit. Oh, I quite agree with that. I think our ancestors would, would... would would be you know i i've done my share of reasonably of things that most people today would be considered reasonably dangerous but i've not done anything as dangerous as shackleton's nah. expeditions mm. any i've not done anything remotely as dangerous as that just a couple of generations back uh, my my mum's really into family history and she's researched all of our ancestors journeys to australia I've got you know four different clans of different European nationalities who came to Australia, they all went through hardships and difficulties on those journeys that make my life look like the most luxurious, relaxing mm. pleasure cruise. Mm. I, I have an ancestor who, when he was a teenager, walked onto a ship, talked himself into a job on the ship, sailed to Australia and never saw his family again. Mm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> You don't have to go as far back as Shackleton. You know, the, the Apollo era program yeah. taking men to the moon. The <laughs> there's there's various anecdotes and I don't know how true some of them are, of them giving in, in confidence to close friends and family, giving their own estimates of their chance of returning alive and safe. You know, the it has to be said that, that the mathematics, the probabilities involved there, it was a very risky activity. It's yeah. remarkable, of course, that the only casualties in the whole program of astronauts happened on the Earth, and that was that was tragic. But but the the level of risk for for a, essentially a government organization just mm. insane by our standards. Yeah, and that highlights how much this has changed in in just a lifetime. Apparently, uh, Buzz Aldrin. And Neil Armstrong had both pegged their chances of returning to Earth at about fifty percent, and yeah, and and they true. thought the failure would most likely occur on on landing on the moon that the craft would be damaged on touchdown, in which case they would be there mm. with functioning oxygen but limited supply, just waiting it out, mm. never never getting off. <clears throat> An amazing endeavor and, and exercise. Now, I've got a question. Can you read out, I think, verses 5 to 8? Could you read verse 7 again? When a wicked man dies, his hope perishes. All he expected from his power comes to nothing. Do you know, my translation does not refer to wicked people at all in Ah, that verse. What does it say? It says, Hopes placed in mortals die with them. All the promise of their power comes to nothing. Hmm. That is a an encouraging verse for anybody who's ever looked at a particularly despicable dictator and wished ill on them, which I know you shouldn't mm. do, but for some of us who, who have personal experiences, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I've got two translations open, and they do mention the wicked. Uh, the New, New Living Translation does a better job, though, of including... Everybody, because it just says when the wicked die, their hopes die with them, Mm. which, of course, is more gender inclusive 
than saying things about the wicked man. But there is something really powerful. There's, I think there's something unsettling about that, about that proverb, about that sentence. When the wicked die, their hopes, their hopes die with them. Of course, the corollary is, does that mean that when the good die, their hopes remain alive or remain active? That does, that, that is the implication. Um, I, I really like that verse actually in the NIV, which is what Cam and I were reading mm. it from, because the, the versions that you're looking at, like I'm just looking at the New King James Version, it says, when a wicked man dies, his expectations will perish. And the hope mm. of the unjust perishes. But mm. if you look at the NIV, it says, and I, I, I don't know anything about whether this is a more accurate translation. It says, hopes placed in mortals die with them. So mm. it's, it's not just talking thing. about, it's not just talking about me being a, a, a powerful person and placing my hope in myself. It's also talking about me placing hope in other people. And them dying, yeah. and the hope dying with Yours them. must be a more recent New International Version, because the one that I read is the New International Version. Uh, just an older right. one. Uh, Interesting. So a, well, a, a less new, new International Version. The <laughs> <laughs> question is, is the newest ours, International is ours, Version. Is it newer or more international? That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in any case, whatever's more accurate, I really like the one that is a bit more universal. It's more placing your hope in any human, ultimately. Mm. Well, Luke, I think the hope will perish. I think you're too conciliatory. Is it conciliatory? Yep, yep, yep. I, I, I think, by harking back to a discussion at the start of this episode, that this is a point on which I'm willing to take this podcast into a schism, um, because I believe <laughs> I believe what the Bible tells me, and and mine says. Definitely that it's hopes placed in mortals and not by mortals. Ah. <laughs> ah. <laughs> these, these fine distinctions matter. Yeah, yeah well. <laughs> and I will schism well, over that. I will die defending <laughs> the fact that these fine distinctions don't matter. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if it is ambiguous in the text, it's quite possible that the ambiguity is deliberate. Because because when you say something mm. that's ambiguous, you can claim both meanings. I yes. spend much of my time at church saying things that are deliberately ambiguous so that I I can be <laughs> truthful about what I think without yeah. getting too many people there's, offside. There's, How's that? That's well, a terrible admission. <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, yes, but you're not alone in it, Ken. <laughs> Spent five years in Hong Kong being deliberately ambiguous. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're we're probably running short on time, but I I should just draw everyone's attention to where we finished at verse sixteen. Um, Luke, I think you made this point. The verse was: "A gracious woman gains respect, but ruthless men gain only wealth." And I'm reading that from the translation that made an effort to make the earlier verse gender inclusive. So here we clearly have a verse in Proverbs that is speaking positive of a woman and contrasting it with a ruthless man. And I think that this is nice to to point out because there is sometimes a perception that Proverbs goes out of its way to, um, you know, the 
the adulterous woman uh, to, to, to draw negative female imagery. But, of course, the adulterous woman imagery follows a passage of approximately equal length in which wisdom is personified as a woman. And, of course, one needs to yes. look at Proverbs 31. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I, now, I've got to be careful there, too. Because oh well, I'll I'll go if you no, want to if you if if you, if you want to be safe and <laughs> yeah. comfortable. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. You 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 go and put your life on the line with this one now, Luke. Well, I I was I was just going to say that um, the other thing I really like about sixteen, which is why I ask that we read through to it, is the phrase, the very intentional way it's phrased: a ruthless man gains only. Mm. wealth mm. Mm. It, it's yeah okay they do they do gain that but love friendship respect yeah. honor joy satisfaction L- literally the only thing they'll have so think of all the you know safety comfort if 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 you want to care about those things adventure excitement fun every single positive emotion experience all the joys of life it's saying an evil mm. man will not have. They will only have wealth. How demeaning is that to the concept of wealth? It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And it closes the circle back because if you look at verse four, riches won't help on the day of judgment, but right living can save you from death. So wealth, it's, it's all they gain that. and it's actually not even going to exactly. help. It's, it's very connected to verse four, which they, they mm. will only gain wealth and wealth will not save them. Doesn't say much for the value of wealth. I think we can put wealth alongside safety and comfort as things we care too much about. <laughs> Reputation. Yeah. 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 And and tying it back to the um, to the lessons sort of focus on large end time scale you know, paradigms, thought paradigms. I think that um, there are many things that we focus on too much. And uh, I, I think that there is two sides to this as well. I think it's possible to be too um, focused on immediate circumstances and neglect the big picture narrative of living in a world with evil and our, our place in combating that and ultimate judgment and heaven and all of those sorts of things. Um, I think it's also possible, though, to be so focused on those those sort of eternal things that you, what's the saying to be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly use. We've by no means, you know, covered every proverb in the book of Proverbs, but I've really enjoyed jumping into the book, and it's it's not one that I remember hearing many sermons on, uh, featuring in many Bible uh, lessons, and uh, and. I've really enjoyed it. Likewise. Hmm. Now, next week we'll be kicking off with uh, Deuteronomy. Is that right, Locke? I understand that is correct. So I'm looking forward to that. I think that would be quite an interesting exploration. Yeah. Very good. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed our discussion. As always, uh, feel free to share this with anyone who you think might enjoy it. And uh, we hope that you'll join us next week. We hope that you are all weathering various lockdowns as well as can be. And uh, we're looking forward to when we can hit our vaccination targets and see that starting to, to take effect. And uh, hopefully hopefully we're, we're beginning to come through this. But 
in in any case uh we can take comfort in the fact that we we belong to a a large a story that's much larger than just the scene that that we occupy and i don't know if that brings us much comfort at all uh but i think that uh one of the uh, one of the messages of the christian faith is that it ought bring at least some comfort so uh, on that note, uh, we'll leave you. If you have any uh, thoughts that you'd like to share with us, you can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and we hope we have you as a listener again next week.